is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 33 working from home still for so many of us. This as the second wave of COVID-19 was sweeping the world once again, facing shutdowns, rising virus cases and hospitalizations, and a lot of stresses again on our economy. Well, this week, we've got several leaders of companies that have had to juggle supply chains. They've had to create zones. They've also had to figure out how to help those impacted by the coronavirus. Among them... It's just been an amazing seven months as we're all trying to return to what we believe will be the new normal. I don't think we're there yet, but we're we're a big part of of becoming part of that. That's Judy Marks, president and CEO of Otis Worldwide. She's been dealing with the pandemic from day one of the global outbreak. Same for Whirlpool chairman and CEO Mark Bitzer. We check in with him. He sees a lasting change in consumer behavior caused by the virus. We begin this week with the race for a vaccine. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's top infectious disease expert, he said vaccines won't be available in the United States until January at the earliest. Well, this week, Bloomberg's Business Week cover story, it is all about Operation Warp Speed. The federal government's mission to accelerate development of a COVID-19 vaccine. And this story talks about what might be the ultimate Operation Warp Speed company. The story written by Bloomberg News Financial Investigation senior writer Stephanie Baker, along with Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Cynthia Coons. Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and I caught up with Stephanie and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. We, we talk about vaccines uh, a lot um, in this program, and obviously I think it's one of the Things that everybody is, you know, watching in addition to, to yes. the, you know, election next week. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, obviously the, the big thing here with the vaccine is, is how, you know, how, how do we get to a viable vaccine and then how do you distribute it? And one of the big unknowns sort of in our coverage has been what role Operation Warp Speed actually plays in this. And that was sort of the mission that we put um, Stephanie and Cynthia on with this story and what we what we learned in the process is um is really told and they told the story through a company called uh uh, emergent which is in baltimore that's a company i've never heard of and yet they're one of the the many players that are sort of in the operation warp speed ecosystem so so stephanie what what does that company emergent tell us about operation warp speeds approach in the vaccine development Yes, well, you know, Operation Warp Speed turned to Emergent when they were looking for surge capacity to make vaccines. Emergent had been a supplier to the U.S. government for years, uh, making uh, vaccines against anthrax and smallpox. And so they were in a prime position to be able to sort of set that aside and start making COVID-19 vaccines and had the sort of the, the, the manufacturing suites and the technology. And it turns out that they're now, they had worked with three of the six vaccine developers that Operation Warp Speed had has publicly backed um, and, you know, really turned themselves into a sort of key node of production uh, for COVID vaccines and are gearing up in the process of making what will eventually be, you know, hundreds of millions of doses of uh, vaccines of various candidates. Now, obviously, there are two things here. There's one is which vaccines will get approved, and then there's manufacturing them and making sure there's enough supply when that approval does come. And I think that's what Operation Warp Speed is really focused on, is making sure that the supply chain is there, that 
the, the, all the manufacturers have what they need and can use, for instance, the Defense Production Act to gain priority in, in, in the supply chain to make sure that those doses are available if and when an approval does come. Right. What, something that surprised me, I don't know whether it should have, considering they are intending to have this process happen at warp speed, but they say their goal is to start delivering a vaccine within 24 hours of its approval. That's a really quick turnaround. Mm. Uh, have they succeeded in kind of doing, having that infrastructure set up for when a vaccine is ultimately approved? Well, they are trying to prepare the groundwork by doing things like building an integrated computer system to track where every dose goes. Um, They've outsourced distribution to a company um, that has historically worked with the Centers for Disease Control on vaccine distribution. But, of course, this all depends on which vaccine gets approved uh, and when. And there's just so many uncertainties uh, around that. And, you know, one of the front runners, Pfizer... Um, which is developing a vaccine together with Germany's BioNTech, um, you know, it has very challenging uh, storage requirements. It needs to be kept at minus 75 degrees Celsius, which is, I think is 112 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, that just creates huge challenges in terms of trying to farm those doses out um, across the country. And so I think, you know, they, they're, they're working with um, individual states to try to come up with a plan. I think some of the states have pushed back saying, you know, you guys, you haven't provided enough detail on things like storage or funding. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. So you, you get some bullish uh, predictions from the people working within Operation Warp Speed um, and it's it's unclear until the time comes, come January, you know, whether or not they will be able to effectively farm this out. Right. Um, it is a massive challenge. There, you know, there was a lot of questions about lack of transparency and whether or not, you know, this was um, wasted taxpayer money. But when you when you think about it, the scale of the economic fallout is so enormous, trillions of dollars, that in a way, $18 billion is very little, um, and that they ought to be throwing more money at it, and will probably have to throw more money at it in, re- in reality when it gets down to the distribution. Be sure to check out that full story online on newsstands and, of course, on the Bloomberg. That was Bloomberg News Financial Investigation Senior Writer Stephanie Baker, along with Bloomberg Businessweek Editor Joel Weber. Coming up next, we've got more on COVID-19 with the Dean of Boston School of Public Health. We are, and everybody is on the edge of their seat. He is bracing for winter. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This week we saw COVID-19 cases surging again, France and Germany announcing new restrictions, the U.S. seeing a jump in cases and hospitalizations. One of our regular go-to voices on the virus, Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean and Professor at Boston University's School of Public Health. He's author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. He told Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and I that like many others around the world, he and his city, they're on the edge. Boston right now is a little bit anxious. I think uh, I feel like we are and everybody is on the edge of their seat. We're seeing cases slowly creep up. They're going up, they go down, but a general slow increase in trend. And I think the mayor and the governor have been appropriately increasingly cautious and and, uh, urging all citizens to be careful. And uh, I think businesses have been doing the same. So I think it's a little bit of a 
a balancing act between knowing that uh, cases are slowly trending up, but taking precautions to double down on the on the things that we are all doing, wearing masks and being careful with testing, with contact tracing, to avoid these cases from becoming another surge. And that's in the greater city of Boston, Dr. Glea, but what about at Boston University? How is the university? How are your students? How are you handling yeah. this? Yeah, it's actually uh, quite quite remarkable how well we are doing in the university. And obviously the university is, uh, is vulnerable to changes in the city around it. But uh, we have uh, had a fairly low case positivity until right now, which is about 0.2%, which is 2 per thousand, while in uh, Brookline around it, we're about 2%, so almost tenfold more. And I, I think the reason for that is that within the university, we have a very big university, but you're able to control things a little bit more. We test all our students twice a week or once a week, depending on their contact. We have very sophisticated and robust contact tracing that if somebody tests positive, we talk to them right away, we isolate them, we isolate their contacts. So in some respects, the university is like a city within a city, but one where you have a lot more control. So we have been so far touch wood doing well. I think there is a lot of anxiety I have and uh, a lot of us have about whether the larger city will end up affecting the university. And obviously, if it does, we'll have to change course as to what we're doing. But so far, the university, frankly, is a safer place to be than the the, uh, city around it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? I think, you know, Sandra, that as we've opened up all kinds of educational systems, um, you know, from K through, you know, of course, going into colleges and universities, I think we've had some success stories. And then we've had certainly some problem areas, especially when it comes to college sports reopening. I mean, do you still feel like it's important that we continue to reopen educational areas and keep them open? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is yes, but it's a it's a qualified yes. It's a mm. it's qualified by two things. Number one is that I don't think opening simply means opening and sort of going back to business as usual, like it was October 2019. Opening means having a lot of precautions in place. Everybody wearing masks. People are being careful not to go into work if they're sick. Self attestation every day. Systems of testing. Systems of isolating people who have positive tests. Isolating their contacts and the entire really the entire range of, of efforts to mitigate the virus. So I think, yes, with those measures in place. I think the second caveat to the yes is that we simply need to have the humility to say, which is a bit unnerving, of course, as, uh, as you can both appreciate, but mm. I think simply if the data change, we should change. And I think we as a university, I think we as a city, as a state, as a country, should have the humility to realize that that the virus may become bigger than us and we simply right. need to change what we're doing. Mm. Well, I have to look ahead then further into the fall and to the winter, Dr. Galea. I mean, it's pretty bad right now. We're seeing record cases. And then when it is dark and cold, no one wants to be outside. Everyone is forced inside. Are you bracing yourself for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I am. I suppose the big question for the winter is, as people are all forced inside, will they continue to congregate inside, which is which is, we know is what's driving most of the cases. And, and here in Massachusetts, analyses show very clearly that uh, a lot of the case spread comes from indoor house parties and gatherings where people are not being careful with uh, protective equipment. So the question is, are people going to go inside and and congregate, which is then going to result in viral spread? The truth is, Carol and Kaylee, if, if each of us 
stayed inside just on our couch without contacting anybody, then there would be no spread of coronavirus. So it really depends on what we do with, uh, by being inside. If we are inside taking precautions, mm-hmm. we'll be fine. But if being inside means congregation, broadly what we saw happen in the southern states in the summer, right? What we saw happen in southern states in the summer is as things got hot, people went inside where there's air conditioning and there was all sorts of congregation which resulted in the spread of the virus. So right. I think it really depends. But but the answer to your question, am I looking ahead apprehensively, is unqualifiedly yes. You know, we've often seen people come out and say, well, there's more cases of COVID-19 because we're doing more testing. Um, is that true or that's not the case? No, it's not the case. I, I heard um, um, Professor Sharpstein uh, mm-hmm. talk about this in, in the clip, and he's totally right. It's not the case. I mean, there's no question we're doing more testing, and uh, as a result, you do find more cases. But there's plenty of evidence that uh, this is a real rise in cases. It's not just due to testing. We're seeing a rise at, in all age groups, and as uh, Professor Sharpstein noted, we are seeing a rise in hospitalizations. If it was simply due to testing and due to testing of healthier people, there would not be a rise in hospitalizations. Well, and that's a really smart point, right? And I also think about the cases that do end up in the hospital. Are they, how severe are they? And, and how are we, or what we have we learned about treating those cases um, because we have been fighting the virus now for six or seven months? Well, we've learned quite a bit, actually. And mm-hmm. when you look at mortality, you'll see that mortality per person is quite a bit down. In fact, we're about one quarter of uh, the case mortality um, that we had in the first wave, which was in March and April. Largely, that's because we've gotten better at treating the disease in hospital. We've learned how it manifests. We've learned when to oxygenate, when to not. So we are getting much better at dealing with an hospital. Now, that doesn't change the fact that if there is a really big surge, it may overwhelm hospitals and ICUs, which is what one always worries about. But on a case-by-case basis, COVID is now much less fatal than it was when we first learned about it six, seven months ago. That's Dr. Sandro Galea. He's dean and professor at Boston University School of Public Health. We like talking to him because he understands the medical side of this and also the educational side, which has been impacted big time because of the virus. He's also author of Pained, Uncomfortable Conversations About the Public's Health. He reminded us once again that we have made progress when it comes to treatment and keeping coronavirus patients alive. Catch that full interview on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com. Still to come? We have been out working around the clock really to keep the world moving. Helping to reopen buildings around the world. Otis Worldwide CEO Judy Marks, she's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you highlights and some of our favorite interviews from our daily radio show. That includes this half hour, a pair of CEOs from two well-known companies that have kept us up and running during the pandemic. Both businesses, by the way, have been around for more than a century. First up, Judy Marks. She's president and CEO of Otis Worldwide, which you might recall was spun off from United Technologies back in April. Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and I talked about the company's reentry to becoming a public company again amid the pandemic. We could have never imagined starting this journey in the middle of a global pandemic. But I've got to tell you, we are so excited to return to our roots as an independent, publicly traded company. And our 69,000 colleagues, who are mainly essential workers, keeping the world moving, maintaining 
obviously elevators and hospitals and infrastructures, and just as importantly, in, in many residential buildings where people have been locked down but still need the use of their, their elevators, mm-hmm. couldn't be more proud. A uh, hundred years to the month we first listed on the New York Stock Exchange, we listed amazing. again on, on April 3rd. It's unbelievable, such an incredible historic company, and uh, we are, we're moving into the future. We're excited. Well, you talk about how all of these places that need your elevators, hospitals and the like. Uh, Here where I am at Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York, when I come in in the morning, when I leave in the afternoon, I just get in the elevator. I don't have to touch anything. They're running automatically so that they can reduce touch points. Can you give me some insight into what kind of touchless technology or procedures you've had to implement in in your elevator systems because of this? Sure. Let me answer that, and then let me take a step back and share with you a little bit about just our business model. But but innovation is core to who we are at Otis, and we had a lot of touchless um, innovations and products available, but they have absolutely come to the forefront now because of COVID. And I'm really pleased with how agile and fast our team's been able to bring these to market throughout the globe. We have gesturing technology. We have the ability for for voice interaction where you say, hey, Otis, take me to floor five. Uh, We have the ability through an app on the iPhone, uh, our e-call app, to be able to, before you ever leave your office, call the elevator, and so it'll be there for you. We have uh, traffic management and a dispatching system that's intelligent traffic flow that allows us only to put four people in an elevator to have them safely space. You know, our customers, these building managers, are telling us they, they want help, they want our guidance, they want our partnership. And it's just been an amazing uh, seven months as we're all trying to return to what we believe will be the new normal. I don't think we're there yet, but we're, we're a big part of, of being, becoming part of that. I mean, so that's really interesting, Judy. So the things that maybe are changing right now when you talk about the new normal, they're here to stay in your view? No, I, I consider we're in an interim normal stage. This is interim. I really do. I believe, and we see it even within our own company. So again, sixty-nine thousand colleagues, mm-hmm. um, almost seventy to seventy-five percent of them didn't have the opportunity to work from home. From the day this started in Wuhan, our service, our field professionals, our service mechanics were in the hospital first and foremost protected by PPE because their health and safety is critical to us. But we have been out working around the clock really to keep keep the world moving. And so, you know, we have a work from home uh, for some of our organization, and it's amazing that we've been able to start the company this way, really to do our board meetings remote, to, to close the books, to do our earnings, to, to really get to know our investors. Um, but most importantly, we've been out there to serve the riding public. And what most people don't know is that you know, over half of our 2 million unit portfolio, we maintain over 2 million units, 25% larger than the next closest competitor globally. And over half of those are in residential buildings, condominiums, apartments. People need to go down to get their food, even if they're not leaving the building, to pick up things. So, you know, again, for us, our passengers are so critical, and we want to keep them flowing safely and and in a healthy way. Judy, we've talked about your business, but at the end of the day, it is a business that has people. And we know that the way companies uh, have been approaching their diversity and inclusion efforts has, has really been put into focus in 2020. And you are just launched a social justice initiative. It's called Our Commitment to Change. You've joined the Paradigm for Parity Coalition, committing to achieve gender parity in your executive leadership by 2030. 
2030 is 10 years from now. Does that feel like it's too long? No, it's it's not too long. And I would uh, be delighted if we could beat the 2030 goal. And, and that's what we try to do with all expectations. Is, Judy, uh, why does it take so long? Take so long? Yeah. Well, we're already at uh, just over 30, a third mm-hmm. right now. And when you think about it, you want to create an opportunity and, and um, op- really opportunities for everyone to excel from all backgrounds, including gender, but really create an opportunity as we grow the company for everyone to excel. Our vision is to give people freedom to connect and thrive in a taller, faster, smarter world, and that means all people. She talks about creating opportunities for all people, really important, especially for a company that's in over 200 countries and thinking about what it means to be diverse in all of the places that it operates. That's Judy Marks, President and CEO of Otis Worldwide. Check out that full conversation. It's on our podcast feed. Still to come, another CEO that's been dealing with the virus from day one because of its global operations. We check in with Whirlpool CEO Mark Bitzer. This is Bloomberg. Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Shares of Whirlpool, check it out. They have rallied big time this year as consumers, especially those in the U.S., hunkered down and invested in their nests. We're talking about their homes. They were buying up appliances, everything to do with the home during the virus. Now, Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I had an in-depth conversation with Whirlpool Chairman and CEO Mark Bitzer. He had to manage a lot, and that includes its supply chain from day one due to its facilities in China. I, I think we're a little bit in a different position than most other domestic companies because we have a pretty big China operation, which actually happened to be 150 miles away from Wuhan, and we have our European headquarters right. in northern Italy. So you remember, you know, when, <laughs> when you first had the China message, initially it felt like China contained, and we were worried about manufacturing supply for China. But then the really decisive element was when um, our president of a European business called me over the weekend and said, oops, there are a couple of cases in Lombardy. And that's, that's kind of when you realize, oops, this is big. Um, so, again, that feels like a really distant memory. But I think that's what, when everything for us changed. Um, and we, we are kind of, by mid-March, you realize everything which we thought about 2020 will just be upside down. And we don't know how deep a canyon is into which we're looking. Um, so that was a pretty dramatic impact. And then you kind of keep all in mind this, unfortunately, with COVID didn't come with an instruction for use, right. for management. So, <laughs> right. No playbook, right? So Nobody had the playbook on this. Somewhat annoying. And then, you you know, you get all these emails from consultants to tell you how to manage a crisis. The problem is they're all right, but they're always six weeks late. So, <laughs> right. so it was an interesting experience because you basically got to improvise. You got to pull the troops together. And, of course, the first focus was entirely about, you know, how do we secure health and safety? Because, you know, we always talk about the economic dimension mm-hmm. of this crisis, but there's a big human dimension, and, and you know, we're all humans with our fears, right. um, and you've got to manage a big organization with people who have also fears, and so managing the health and safety of our people, that obviously was the first one, um, but then, of course, you talk about all the business implications, and uh, at least as a CEO, I was, quote-unquote, in the lucky situation that even in 2008, 2009, I was here in the U.S., and I, I wasn't running the company, but I call it a front seat to <laughs> what we experienced back then. So you, so you took take some lessons from back then, and um, of course, first focus was how do we secure liquidity because we don't know how bad this is going to be, um, and then you start taking all the decisions. Um, so it was pretty much a rolling up the sleeves event back then in March and April. Yeah. So Mark, give us a sense of kind of where you are now. How has your business 
changed? What are the big issues you're focusing on right now? You know, Paul, I mean, it's first of all, I never heard you earlier talking about visibility. Um, you know, back then in April or March, and we had visibility for a week. Um, I know it sounds silly, but you had a visibility wow. for a week, and you just wow. don't know what happened. Then as Q2 evolved, you had a visibility for maybe a couple of weeks or months. By now, we see three months, maybe four months, um, which is unusual, but at least you see a little bit longer. So you see a little bit more of a perspective. The way I look at it right now from our business and our industry is kind of, and, and zooming out a little bit, as, as you all know, there was a lot of talk initially about is this going to be a U-shape recovery or V-shape or W-shape or whatever shape. Yep. And by now, I think most people realize that's increasingly an irrelevant discussion because what matters is in which cycle is your industry. Um, mm -hmm. Because every, every industry goes for a different cycle. And, you know, initially it felt like our industry is the corona loser, but now, I think it now immediately, be, immediately becomes more and more apparent we're a, a long-term maybe a corona winner. And what I mean with that is, it's a simple fact, our business is in the home. It's, a, yeah. it's about improving life at home. It's about washers, dishwashers, and ovens. People are spending time at home. And what we see now increasingly, that's where we're now more, and I'm, again, I'm leaving the human side of it away, which is still a big issue. Mm -hmm. But from business side, we're more and more in the opportunity side of this corona cycle. And that's good news because people are spending time at home. They're investing in the nest, as we call it. Yeah. And they're, you know, just think about yourself. Do you know a single friend of a neighbor who didn't paint some room in the <laughs> house or didn't buy something new? Everybody's improving the house. And it's, not, it's more than just kind of a short-term improvement people are rethinking the purpose of a home and that plays in our favor yeah you know when did you realize that that was starting to happen because you know it was really fascinating i think and i don't know if paul you concur with this but like as journalists because i think initially everybody was afraid to talk about the pandemic and the impact and not having visibility and then all of a sudden we started to see different companies you know of course nobody wished the health crisis on anybody but whether it was netflix or some others you know, that were benefiting because of the crisis. And all of a sudden you started to see the numbers and you're like, oh yeah, I thought everybody was going to lose in this crisis and that wasn't the case. When did you guys start to see that in your numbers? Yeah, I mean, and Carol, it's, it's tough to pinpoint exactly when yeah. we saw it, but I think it became apparent pretty much around the summer period. But first of all, I got to step back a little bit. It's and, and we're certainly not the health experts, and we're probably already enough self-declared health experts around here. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, we but, have them know, here, it, too. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it became pretty apparent in April, May, that despite all the talk, we have to learn to live with this crisis and the coronavirus, and it's not going to go away short term. And that's when we also realized that will change the consumer behavior. And the way we look at it right now, you know, it's... Um, hopefully, this corona crisis at one point will be behind us. I don't think the consumer behavior will go back all normal. Because think about it, you know, most consumers, or not most, but many consumers will, by the time this is over, probably have spent more or less a year at home. <laughs> yeah. um, you don't erase a year of consumer behavior from a memory. It's not a flash memory. That will stay. People will invest in the home. Um, and that's becomes, it just becomes every month more apparent. And we see also in our own business, you know, the initial demand was a lot what we call crisis appliances, you know, the freeze of the microwaves or dress products which just, you know, broke down because they have been used so intensively. But we now see more and more people spending money and it goes more and more into big ticket items. Like what? 
you know, I mean, you talk now about the higher-end fridges or you talk about the higher-end ovens. People are really investing. Mm. It's not just with the rest and the crisis. They're investing and they're upgrading um, because they, <laughs> they all see, okay, I got to spend a lot more time at home going forward. I don't think certain behaviors like, you know, we, you know, we have statistics, 50, 55% of the people even now say they spend significantly more time in the kitchen and cooking than ever before. Oh, yeah. that, will no go, that will not go back to zero. It will not. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, again, plays in our favor. Hey, Mark, you, you initially mentioned something about the su- supply chain and the shock there. Give us a sense of how your supply chain is looking now. Um, in short, Paul, we're still supply chain constrained. Okay. Um, now, let me expand a little bit more on this one. You know, we, early in this crisis, you know, remember around the springtime and when people were speculating, well, is it over by Easter? And a lot of industrial companies shut down the factories. We did not shut down the factories, um, which was a little bit bold decision, but I'm glad we did. Um, which, on the other hand, was very demanding on our people because we asked them to come to work where a lot of people were extremely uncertain and nervous. Yeah. Having said that, it gave us a lot of lead time to learn how we can reasonably safe produce and have an environment in the factories which kind of maximizes the health and safety of our people. Because in a big industrial factory, and keep in mind, if you would go to one of our factories, some of them are a mile long. These are not kind of small buildings. They're massive, big factories where steel comes in and a washer comes out on the other side. So you're trying to get that in a safe environment. You know, and these, again, these are industrial complexes with two or 3,000 employees in one factory. So you have line distancing, mask wearing, sanitization, temperature check. Um, it's a massive effort. And, and the fact that we started that early allowed us at least to get much faster in producing reasonably safe. Now, having said that, today, fast forward, you know, the fact is if you have a, if you try to keep a factory safe, you will not get it to the same yield as pre-COVID mm-hmm. because you have to reduce the paces of the speed on a line because you have to have a social, social distancing. You will have disruptions with components. You have challenges with logistics. So no matter how hard you work, you will not get it to exact the same output as pre-COVID. And that's why our supply chain today um, is constrained. I mean, it, it, we're not fully able to keep up with demand, which I know from financial perspective you would say that's a good problem to have true. But of course, on the other hand, we're, we're frustrated of letting consumers down and, and having them wait six weeks for, for a product. So Mark, if since you're, you anticipate that, as you said, you know, you can't erase a year of consumer behavior from memory. And, and I agree with you. I think I'm rethinking my expenditures going forward, even when things get back to normal. You know, it's very easy, especially in a city like New York, you can just kind of money just kind of falls out of your pockets, you know, but you can kind of rethink your focus. If you think that consumers will continue to focus on their homes and spend, what kind of capital expenditures do you need to potentially do to meet that expected greater demand? Or can you do it under existing facilities? Um, let's put it this way. Under normal circumstances, we could do it under, within, mix, within yeah. our existing network. But again, as long as COVID is around us, and you, put, you give me whatever <laughs> end date you think it is, but you know, as <laughs> long as it's around us, it will be somewhat constrained. And you will have on and off, and you will have a supplier who has some challenges because they had to shut down the factory, whatever else. That was Whirlpool Chairman and CEO Mark Bitzer talking about strains on his supply chain. It's something we've heard from a lot of CEOs, understandably, uh, during the pandemic. What really stood out for me, though, is what he had to say about the consumer. People were 
investing in their home, investing in their nest, as he said, everyone improving their home. And he thinks that that's not going to necessarily change that consumer behavior, that it's not going to go back to where it was pre-COVID. He says, you just don't erase a year of consumer behavior from memory, at least not that quickly. That entire 15-minute discussion, by the way, it can be found on our Bloomberg Business Week podcast feed. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. More coming up in our next hour, including from Managing the virus to K-pop fans, super fans, that is, managing QAnon. Get ready for the K-pop stands. That's all coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in the second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, highlights from our daily show, our daily radio show, including one with the former head of Paramount Pictures. We're talking about Adam Goodman. He is disrupting the Hollywood production model, figuring out how to make movies during the shutdown. We begin, though, with a story in the magazine, and you just might want to stop dead in your tracks take this all in. This story is about how no one can handle QAnon like the global army of K-pop superfans, which, by the way, are called stands. Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and I learned a lot by talking with Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carvel. She wrote the story. She joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber. Props for Olivia for for seeing it through. Um, it's a story about K-pop stands. If you don't know what stands are, it's the super fans. Um, and K-pop has legions of them, and we really got a sense of what they're capable of over the summer when Trump's Tulsa rally ended up basically being, um, for as far as we know, basically taken over by super fans who who helped buy a bunch of tickets and then didn't show up. And it was this glimpse into the power of their fandom. Of the um, stan. Of the stan. And, you know, it's another thing also that, you know, if you follow K-pop before it, and especially on the commercial side, you can see what influence like bands like BTS have when they let their preferences know about brands. It immediately moves the needles for brands. So Olivia dug into this for us, and Olivia, like, why is this so relevant, like, right now at this day and age, with uh, a you know an election just around the corner? Yeah, I, I felt like researching this story. I had to learn a whole new language: <laughs> K-pop and stands and BTS and Army, and you know, there's so many layers to this story that was just fascinating as I was researching it. And I think you're right, Joel, that like over summer, we, we really saw the K-pop stands kind of, we saw the full force of just how powerful they can be at mobilizing and rallying online. And they've become such a significant force in the U.S., you know, politically speaking, that you've got political consultants actually taking notice of K-pop fans now. There were some Democratic grassroots organizations reaching out with Biden for K-pop memes after that, that Tulsa rally. And if you'd read the story, you'll see that the, you know, the reaction they got from the K-pop fans wasn't exactly, exactly warm. They responded with comments like, hell to the no, and we don't <laughs> like you either. So Hard no. Kind of interesting, yeah, that these guys are... You know, they're not a monolith, um, they're leaderless. It's hard to harness them from any any side of the political spectrum. But there's a deep connection with African-American music culture because right. the genre borrows liber- liberally from them. So there was, you know, that strong connection with Black Lives Matter, which we saw earlier in the summer. Right. Olivia, I find it so interesting that K-pop, in theory, is supposed to be 
unpolitical. Band members are told, you know, don't wade into politics, but it really has, at least for the fan base, become political. Yeah, and we actually saw BTS tweet out support for the Black Lives Matter movement earlier in June, and I think that's largely because they do borrow so much of African-American, you know, in the music culture with the way Mm -hmm. they dress, the way the songs sound, the way they sing. And when BTS waded into Black Lives Matter, which was seen as a political movement, they also donated a million dollars to Black Lives Matter charities. That's when the fandom really ramped up and started to, um, you know, in one day they raised a million dollars to match BTS's donation. So you can see just the sheer force to kind of hijack white supremacist hashtags (laughs) and also push out the message for BLM. And let's talk more also just about the commercial side of this. I love there's a reference to Downey uh, (laughs) and and sort of a BTS member uh, commenting on his preference of Downey. And what happened when when that went down? That was Jungkook. So he commented on how he used the Downey fabric softener in the adorable scent. And within a day, they sold out of a two-month global supply of this particular fabric softener. We've, I've heard examples of like another one of the band members, V, he was photographed holding a book in the airport and it sold out online. Um, or they, they spot, were sponsored by Hyundai Palisade and the SUV was on back order for months. So the buying power, the commercial power of ARMY, which is what the BTS fans are called, is just unparalleled. Yeah, I feel like this story is about just a reminder, especially in a week where big tech and the CEOs are hauled before Congress or before the Senate mm-hmm. specifically and, you know, being kind of questioned, I think, for their might. It just shows you what can be done uh, online, the power of this. What's, what's kind of your key takeaway from, from this and reporting this story out? I think my key takeaway is really the fact that when, when you look at what's going on online right now and you look at the rise of these alt-right groups, these conspiracy theorists like QAnon, is that you speak to the experts who cover these groups and really the only ones who can go up against or beat a group like QAnon at its own game is K-pop fans with, you know, the the sheer volume, the number of them online and the fact that they're so digitally savvy and cheeky and creative with how they, you know, engage in meme warfare or takedowns of particular hashtags, whether it's QAnon or White Lives Matter, You know, we've seen them do this time and time again over summer. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next week and even after the election as we see the the rise of QAnon and K-pop kind of trying to to filter that out or or trying to even it out um, by, you know, taking over their hashtags or or getting involved to demobilize them. There's like such a common misconception of who BTS fans are or who K-pop members are. That was Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carville and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Coming up, Nesta U.S. President Jeremy Baines on the role of climate change policies when it comes to a COVID-19 recovery. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. 
This half hour, we've got two guests who are thinking big time about our climate. This next company, working closely with the transportation and aviation industries, they work on renewable diesel, renewable jet fuel, and renewable and recycled plastics. We're talking about Jeremy Baines. He's president of Nesty US, and he had a discussion with us about how climate change policies are a central part of the COVID-19 recovery. He talked with Kaylee Lines and I. It's been a very tough year, um, not not only for, for, for Neste, but uh, for for business in general, um, and we as a company, uh, we, we have done we have done better than than maybe others. Uh, the renewable space has remained very strong, um, but and all of our employees have now been working from home for at least since the end of March. So we've really had to adjust to this new situation. Right, as so many of us have. As we come out of this, and obviously we are far from out of it, we still have a long way to go, but you make the case Mm. that um, the COVID-19 recovery is really going to need climate change policy. Can you just talk me through that thinking? Well, if we we look at COVID-19, we look at California wildfires. You were mentioning Hurricane Zeta, so this Atlantic hurricane season. They've all been made so much worse by climate change, and it's, it's really costing lives and it's causing massive economic damage. And if we think about it, at the root cause of this climate change is really the burning of fossil fuels. So, so now, as we start thinking about coming out of this really massive economic downturn, we need to put sustainability at the heart of the recovery. And, and if we talk about fossil fuels, one of the, the, the key areas where we see that importance is in transportation. And where it's especially critical is in those hard-to-abate vehicles, those those big rigs, those trucks on the roads, those planes in the skies, those vessels on the seas, these are, these are um, industries, these are sectors where the emissions are con- continue to grow and which is so difficult for us to reduce. So we need to be smart in terms of policy. We need to put a price on carbon uh, that, that, in, that is technologically technology and feedstock neutral and, and have, have policies in place that really encourage the use of low-carbon fuels. And, and I'm, I'm actually quite encouraged because it was about this time last year that uh, Neste had the opportunity to testify in Congress. And we are now starting to see really much more talk about renewable fuels in D.C. and the role that it must play in the future for a, a sustainable recovery. Do you think that changes depending on who is in the White House, who is in Congress? Well, I think climate change is, is not going away. We, no. we really need to we really need to fight this, and it's it's not it's not only from uh, what happens in Congress. We we also see it from the industries. We see the CEOs of companies um, um, who are making these business decisions. They see which direction the market is going. If if we think about uh, the millennials, the Gen Z, they are now starting to enter the marketplace. They are starting to make those decisions. And for them, the environment, social justice and climate change are mm. important issues. So if you're, if you're a CEO of a company today, you really want to make these choices. And um, regulators, NDC is starting to see that. So I think regardless of who will be in, in the White House, this becomes an important topic. But Jeremy, I think it does make a difference in that part of Biden's platform is clean energy investment and infrastructure. Couldn't that make a difference in demand for a business like yours? It, it would do. 
um, I, I think it, it's clear that the, that the pace of change would be different depending on what policy choice you make. Um, but I think it's the, the, the question about making a poli- policy choice has already been made. Yes? So it, then it's just the speed of implementation and how quickly as a, as, a, as a country, as a society, we can actually start tackling climate change, but also how quickly we can build a new, better, more sustainable economy. You know, it's funny, my 17-year-old said, you know, I think that your generation or even, you know, older generations don't really care because they're not going to be around and they're not going to be in the world that I'm growing up in. And, you know, just talked about climate change in terms of policies. We we talk about it a lot. And listen, there are a lot of companies doing great initiatives uh, and and so on. But I do think just look at the world, we're not moving fast enough. So I'm curious what hopes you have that we pick up the speed when it comes to these policies that take care of our environment. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you, you raise an interesting point about children asking it. My children, uh, they are, they are going to live for decades in, in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So it's what, what I do also impacts their future. Right, yeah, and it's from, and it's. I think it's from that perspective that we that we even even if we're not going to be around for that long, they will be. What kind of world do we want to leave for future generations? Right. Yeah, so so yes, um, you, you are correct that it, it is important who who comes into the White House, but it's it's really the policy clarity at the end of the day that is going to drive the change, mm-hmm. and the policy clarity is mm-hmm. going to come from people who vote and people who care. Jeremy, I'm wondering how sticky you think this is. People pay a lot of lip service to it now, but has COVID-19 really brought about a sustained, meaningful push toward better climate policy? I think so. And I think so because um, people, people are at home. People are spending more time thinking about all the times that they were stuck in traffic um, people are looking at what's happening in the in environment around them much more closely than in the past. So yes, I do think this is going to be sticky. Um, it is, and they they want something new. They they want they want to have some hope coming out of this crisis. And I think a sustainable recovery is that hope that we can bring. Jeremy, one thing I want to get into for those who might not be excuse me familiar with what you guys do. I mean, it is about renewable fuels. What specifically? Tell me what the process or what what you do and how that reduces the impact on climate on the climate yes yeah, so Mister is the is the world's largest producer of renewable fuels renewable diesel specifically and what, what is it it is a fuel um it is a diesel fuel that you can drop into any diesel engine today using all the infrastructure that's available today but rather than putting new carbon into the atmosphere it's actually using carbon from the atmosphere. That was Nesty U.S. President Jeremy Baines. Coming up... It's time for content creators on a professional side to understand that traditional is shifting. Invisible Narratives co-founder and former Paramount Pictures president Adam Goodman on how the film industry is evolving amid our new world order. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. 
Well, we know the content industry has been disrupted big time by COVID-19. It's also been impacted by the increase in digital streaming services and how consumers consume content, right? We know that. Well, someone who understands all of this big time, it's the team behind Invisible Narratives, a digital content studio co-founded by Adam Goodman, former president of Paramount Pictures, and Andrew Sugarman, former Walt Disney executive vice president of global digital media and publishing. Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and I caught up with Adam, who talked about why this is both a stressful and creative time. It has literally turned everything that we know about how you make something and turned it upside down, shook it around and uh, and turned it all around. It is it is the most disorienting and most exhilarating uh, time, I think, that I've ever been in the entertainment industry. Well, and you were producing a movie, at least through part of this. The pandemic, of course, isn't over. And Songbird, uh, your film that's coming out, was one of the first to go back into production after full lockdown. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like? What kind of protocols did you have to put in place? Uh, give us some insight. It was, imagine an operating room. And uh, and the system that our co-producers and, and, and us uh, created in the situation was to try to mimic the amount of, of people and resources that were needed directly in the operating room or people that were outside, maybe were a little bit... Um, less essential. They were tested a bit less frequently. They had less access to our cast. Movie crews have great rhythm and great speed and efficiencies at which 100 years of making movies is nearly perfected. And this kind of scrambled that process because now all of a sudden you couldn't get to a certain place on a set. You had to pass things along. You had to invert literally the way and rhythm of how everything was done. So it was it was really challenging, but thankfully we got through it. And made a great movie in the process of it. Yeah, really fascinating. I mean, to hear, you know, kind of how you figured out how to get it done. We've talked to some other people who've done some some filming too, and, and that's what it all came down to, is really creating these zones to make it make it happen. So, so where are you? Are you able to get new productions going? Give us an idea of, of what the flow is like. The flow is actually starting to get back to normal. Okay. Um, I, I think smaller, more nimble productions are having more success and, and more safety on the set just simply because it's less people coming in contact with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're back in a different sort of way. The, the movie theater business is upside down, but, but everything else is starting, to, is starting to move in more normal ways again. Mm-hmm. It's unparalleled, and it's time for content creators on a professional side to understand that traditional is shifting. So we're really trying to blend a traditional mode which is take the best of storytelling and uh, and content creation through years of, of practice and experience, but do it in ways that are right. specific to audiences that really are underserved right now and give them big events mm. that can be things that are different than what they would get because the movie theaters aren't open in their towns. They, they're, this is the first generation that, that has no gatekeepers in front of them when they want to tell a story or they want to publish something they can distribute directly to uh, an audience of friends, and sometimes those friends become fans, and sometimes those fans create superstars. <laughs> and this audience is, is used to watching things in a different way, and they're used to consuming things in a different way. So we decided that what made most sense was to go after stars that were not stars in a traditional sense, but were stars for our kids and, and, and young people. So we partnered with FaZe Clan, which is one of the biggest uh, gaming uh, lifestyle groups on the planet right now and made a movie with Faze Rugg 
who's one of their biggest uh, one of their biggest stars. He's got over 30 million followers across his various social platforms. But we paired him with a guy named Greg Plotkin, who I made all the paranormal activity movies with. And so it was really trying to combine, you know, great storytelling, but also next generation storytellers to put those two together and try to do something a little bit different. And what kind of stories do you find that they're most interested in? I noticed Songbird, the movie you have coming out, is a thriller. Crimson, the other one, is a horror film. Is that what's hot right now? Storytelling is storytelling. And if if I knew what was going to work in storytelling, I would... I would be on my yacht from the phone call, not stuck in my office right now. Wouldn't that I, I be nice? Think that the one thing I, I think the one thing I, I, I do feel strongly about, though, is the way content is consumed is different, and therefore the way we make things has to be different. You can't make things and try to reach as broad of audiences as you used to. You need to make things that are much more local in terms of their scale and spirit so that you're making things for a, a small audience of highly engaged fans. And additionally... It can't be created with so much artifice that you have a food stylist who's putting sesame seeds on the bun to make the bun and and the hamburger look delicious. Instead, with kids, they're used to real now. And so we spent 100 years in the movie business trying to make everything look perfect. And now when kids can shoot things from their backyard, Mm. they just want it to look real and authentic. But they still need storytelling running throughout it. I gotta agree, authentic and real works. Well, that's Adam Goodman, co-founder of Invisible Narratives, former president of Paramount Pictures. That full conversation, it's on the Bloomberg Business Week podcast feed at Bloomberg.com or at Apple Podcasts. Still to come, she is fighting to protect something we cannot live without. Water. The CEO of ThirstForWater.org, Mina Gulli, on personal and global struggles. That's straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Let's wrap up this week. I gotta say I'm a total fangirl of our next guest. She is devoted to drawing attention to the conservation of water and reminding us that not everyone has the luxury of turning on a tap and having a seemingly never-ending supply of clean water. She's a water advocate, environmentalist. She's a marathon runner. Her latest initiatives, it's a global hand-washing day which provided soap and hand-washing stations for those who needed it. The connective tissue, of course, is all about combating the global water crisis. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney and I caught up with Mina Gooley founder and CEO of thirstforwater.org from Australia, whose world, like so many, has been completely changed because of the virus. It's been um, quite a challenge, actually. We've basically been in lockdown since March. So that's what now, eight months um, of very restricted movement. We've got a five, we've had up until very recently, a limit on movement of five kilometers from home and one hour of exercise outside every day. So as you can imagine, that is uh, challenging to deal with, um, particularly since it's been going on for so long. All our borders are closed. You have to get permits. We've got a ring of steel. That's its name. Uh, The (laughs) ring of steel around the city. So we can't even go out to the rural and regional areas. It's pretty pretty severe. Uh, And there's been a lot of criticism of that, obviously, but the vast majority of people here have just knuckled down and said, you know what, we can either hope for change or we can adapt to this being the new normal and we can just get on with life and know that at the end of this, there will be life. And Mm. life has come. We're down in very, very low single digits at the moment, down from hundreds and we had, I think, 850 cases a day, which I know in in your language is not a lot, but for us it was an enormous number and we were all shocked. Right. But now we're down to literally one or two cases a day. So 
the pain and, and the suffering has been worth it. Wow, that's an interesting story because here in this country we have uh, a difficulty having people, you know, maintain social distancing or even wearing a mask or even washing their hands. Talk to us, Mina, about that aspect of, you know, trying to protect yourself and others through hand washing. I know that for a lot of people that is not how, – how could that be a problem? But if you are water-deprived, uh, ergo, there's the problem. Yeah really interesting because I think through this pandemic, you know, we're all looking at ourselves and going, oh, well, we've got a really tough time. But around the world, there are 3 billion people who don't have access to adequate hand-washing facilities. And you think about how many times we all sit down, stand up in front of the tap, wash our hands, grab a bar of soap, and to think that there are 3 billion people who don't have access to that, it's quite horrifying. I had an enormous privilege to talk at the UN in the middle of lockdown from my home. That was a bit of a weird experience where the Secretary General and all these heads of UN agencies and I'm like, you know, you're talking to these people from home, like your bedroom. It's a bit weird. That's when you want to make um, sure the dog doesn't bark, Mina, or, yeah. the, or the cat get in the, well, in the lucky, shot. Right. Well, Carol, lucky for, lucky for me at that stage, it was 2 a.m. in the morning. So you think, you know, 8.30 is terrible, 2 a.m. Oh and trying God. to stand up and sound sensible. But the thing about that is that this is not a talking problem. This is an action problem. Mm-hmm. And so two weeks ago, I decided for my 50th birthday, it made me feel so old, um, <laughs> I was going to do something to try to solve this because, as you know, my philosophy is that people can help people. And so we ran a campaign called Sweat the Soap where we asked people to go out and run or walk kilometres and for every kilometre that they ran or walked for the period of a week, we donated a bar of soap to communities in need. And for every 100 kilometres, we donated a hand-washing station. So it sounds like you know one kilometre or five kilometres is not very much, but we had thousands of people from over 65 countries wow. participating in this. We donated over 80,000 bars of soap and 450 hand-washing stations just in one week. Getting involved is easy. So this um, it became very. This was kind of a, a project that I did because I wanted to give back something, and my mm-hmm. birthdays shouldn't be about receiving; they should also be about giving back. And so that um, my birthday combined with Global Handwashing Day made me go, "We've got to do something." And the do something has turned into we've got to do something even more because, as you said, the problem is so big. So we're going to run another campaign in December and a couple more next year. But if people want to get involved, they can sign up um, to stay um, up to date with our plans. Um, my, the best thing to do is to go to my website, minaguli.com, M-I-N-A-G-U-L-I.com, and then you can sign up and we'll keep you posted with, with the next project. So, Mina, just you know, broadly speaking, how has the pandemic made the global water crisis even worse and more painful. How's it impacted it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think um, it's, it's impacted it in a couple of ways. First of all, it's put it front and center for billions of people around the world who don't have access to the hand-washing facilities that we take for granted. You know, water for all of us actually is everything. But many of us, most of us, treat it as if it's nothing. We really don't pay attention to how important it is. And for the billions, the three billion people who don't have access to adequate hand washing facilities, remember many of those are women and children. And for them, this pandemic has made things 10 times worse because it's not just diarrhea and other waterborne diseases. All of a sudden, it's coronavirus as well. So I think that, mm. that's one element. The second thing is 
pollution is a major problem and of course we're all using more plastic, we're all using non, a lot more um, disposable materials and I think we forget that there are implications for that in our waterways, in our oceans um, and that, that's going to have long-term implications as well. So I am shocked at how water-blind companies, policymakers, investors are that we have forgotten that it's not just water that comes out of a tap, it's that water is required for everything we use and we buy and we consume every single day. From the food we eat, the clothes that we wear, the power that goes into our computers, all of those things take water. This is not a problem in some far-flung place of the world. This is a problem even in in America and for companies and for organisations in the United States. And I think um, we need to do something to shake this up. That's not talking, that's actually action. And that's driving change. And the only way we'll succeed in making change is by putting water onto the agenda. Again, not just at places like the UN, Mm -hmm. but in boardrooms and in policy and amongst local and, and national governments. We need to change how we think about water. So, you know, this kind of brings to mind some uh, an adage we all kind of know, which is think globally but act locally. Are you seeing any local success stories that we should emulate or learn from? Yeah, I think there are a number of localized success stories where people have turned things around, where um, cities that have been on the brink of running dry, cities like Cape Town, for example, we all watched Cape Town face down day zero, and they implemented very, very significant water restrictions. They did a big public awareness campaign that said, don't waste water. Um, I'm not sure that you'd classify it as a a success story because they almost ran out, Um, but it it is a success story in terms of them being able to turn it around um, at the end. I think... More broadly speaking, there are huge number of commercial success stories in terms of recycling and reusing materials. The reality is when water goes into everything, the more things we waste, the more water we waste. So creating a society focused on developing circular economies, on reducing food waste, on looking, encouraging people to look for recycled materials in the, in the, in the clothes and in the food that they, they're looking at, um, looking for recycled packaging, and just asking questions about where did this stuff come from and, and what was the level of responsibility amongst the companies that, that made it to produce it and deliver it to me. Yeah, it's just you want you want to have companies increasingly talking about this because they, they can really move the needle when it comes to doing things better. Um, Mina, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you, you know, when we talked to you, I think about, I think it was, was it back in late 2018? It was just as you were beginning... Um, your plan to do 100 marathons in 100, in 100 days. It was all about raising awareness of the global water crisis. So this was back in 2018. You got through about two-thirds, I think, to your 60-second marathon, and I know then you had um, a really tough injury. How are you doing physically? Yeah, I, um, I broke my leg. Uh, yeah. It yeah. was... Um, I, I mean, I've got to honestly tell you, it was one of the darkest moments in my life. Um, I sat in a wheelchair uh, in the hospital in, in Cape Town, which is where we were at the time, diagnosed with this absolutely massive stress fracture that wasn't just a little break. It was my bone almost broken through, the biggest bone in your body. Um, and I sat there and all I could think of was I've let down our community. I've let down the water crisis. I've let down the next generation 
um, this is all a disaster. Yeah. And sometimes you need to go into the darkness to be able to appreciate the light. Well, she certainly understands that firsthand and gives us some hope on this weekend when so many of us are facing challenges and stress on many levels. Gotta say, love Mina Gulley, founder and CEO of Thirst for water.org. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser, joined this week by Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines and Paul Sweeney. Be sure to tune in daily to Bloomberg Business Week Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. You can also hear more of our Bloomberg Business Week conversations. Download them at Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And be sure to check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast this week the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, Rajiv Shah, on a big announcement and investment aimed at disrupting the inequities widened by the pandemic. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands and it's online and, of course, always on the Bloomberg. Have a safe weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>